Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hope is a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Hope is a coping mechanism that people have found. Mm-hmm to get through hard days mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and hard months and hard lives. Mm-hmm. And I feel like us, mm-hmm. especially us, mm-hmm. we are in a place now where we don't need that coping mechanism mm-hmm, as much. Mm-hmm. And now that we don't need that coping mechanism, we can experiment with new things. Mm-hmm. And we can find higher levels, different levels, to explore joy mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and pleasure. And pleasure. <laughs> Hello, I'm Nolika Radway, and this is Raising Rebels, a podcast about oppressed parents raising free children. Today, I am joined by Bio. Bio, say hello to the people. Hello to the people. <laughs> hello to the people. Um, And we're talking about, today we're talking about helping our children find joy in the realities of what this world is without like, peddling is the only word I could think of, but like, just like feeding them like this, like a false hope of like what could be or what should be or what we wish would be, but like living in the reality. So I like to start the podcast about, um, with one word to describe how you're feeling right now. So how are you feeling right now, Bio? Um, well, my family has just gone through a storm of, uh, a painful loss, um, of one of a member of my family, um, my mother-in-law, passed away a few days ago. And so we're still in the compost heat and heat uh-huh. of, of that. But I'm, I'm grateful for what she is teaching, even from beyond, if you will. Uh-huh. And so we're, 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 we're quite raw at the moment, but we're open. The rawness is a vulnerability to, and a receptivity to, to things that we otherwise would not have been able to listen to. Um, were it not for her passing. So we are here. Let me just say we're here. Fine is too saccharine a concept, um, too sugary. We're here and we're dealing and we're, we're making do. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. I am feeling in, like over, like gratitude at at this very expansive level um i'm feeling so incredibly um, fortunate like just like just feeling really really grateful to be here with you to like i took a walk this morning with my partner and just like in the world just like really like receiving what the world has for me and like what um, so that's kind of where we're meeting in this moment. 
uh, which feels tender, <laughs> you know, like, well, it feels really, 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 really tender. Um, so why don't we start by, can you tell, introduce yourself to all of us? Well, my name is Bayo Akomalafe, and I'm from, uh, I don't want to be humble and say little country because it's actually huge. And, uh, I'm from the biggest conglomeration of Black bodies on the planet called Nigeria. Uh, I'm of the Yoruba people. I talk probably too much and write and think along with the imperatives of what I might, for the sake of our conversation, call an impossible public. Um, mm. So I'm, I don't describe myself as a public intellectual. I describe myself as a trans-public intellectual. That is, for, for a public order that is not yet, that is not there, and yet it is lingering in a ghostly and ghastly way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm... My work is about speaking, more than speaking truth to power, it's about descending and convening a different kind of inquiry at the end of the world, Mm -hmm. at the end of time. Mm -hmm. And perhaps more importantly than all these grandiose concepts and sentiments is that I'm a fathering concept. My body is, is calibrated towards becoming father to my two children and and becoming husband, becoming partner, becoming ally, becoming friend to EJ, who is the greatest blessing to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, I'm so, <laughs> I gotta say, um, we're getting to it right away because you're, Word, like the way you speak and you're able to communicate like these full thoughts. I am so, um, again, grateful, but, and also like ready, you know, that I, I mean, as we're beginning, um, I just want you to know like that public that you are working towards that is not fully realized yet. Um, I'm fully realized and and bring it. <laughs> I want all of what you have to offer um, in this conversation. Tell us about your children. Just before I came on the call, um, my, my wife said uh, that I should tell you that we're raising rebels indeed. And we have Yay. two rebels. Uh, so um, they are named uh, Alicia Anya. She's eight years old. And she's, uh, I think my hidden desire for her, and everyone has these, I guess, what I anticipated her becoming was, or doing was, um, was tinkering with the elements, science and all of that. But Alicia is an artist and a philosopher. She, she loves to paint, she loves to story things, and she's very, very resistant to my centrality. (laughs) <laughs> she's like, you're not the only author in the family. Mm-hmm. And she she's eight years old and she's convened a writing group of young youngsters like her, herself. They've started a book club and she's writing stories and she's just amazing and a mm-hmm. blessing to us. Kea is, is the magician. Uh, he's four years old and is this beautiful you know, unfairly handsome boy, <laughs> right? 
I love that. Unfairly handsome. I understand exactly what you mean. And you know exactly what I mean? He's just like, exactly nah, that, that's not fair. So no one should look like this. <laughs> I know. Ex- yes. yes. Thankfully, because he looks like his mom, not like me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so grateful that you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Kea is also... Kea Bayami is his name, Kea Jaden Abayami. Um, he's also, to put it in the colloquialisms that we're used to, um, on the spectrum, on the autistic mm-hmm. spectrum. Um, and with that comes this, this fascinating intensity that our family is living through. Um, because what that means for us is that we are largely defined by his, by his, um, by this space, by this energy around and within and working through Kea. I like to dis- discover him and articulate Kea most of the time as a crack on the surface of things. And our family is studying inside that crack as if it were a classroom. Um, we're listening, we are recalibrating, we are rearticulating. And that's, that's what cracks do. They disturb continuity. They invite a porosity. And, and so um, that's why I describe him as a magician. Um, he's, at this moment, he's um, quite enamored by dinosaurs, Christmas, and Halloween Every day is Christmas, either Christmas or Halloween. Mm-hmm. And he greets us, happy Halloween every day. And we respond in kind. And then someday, some, sometimes in the mid-afternoon or uh, just before evening, he breaks into happy Christmas or merry Christmas. So, mm. <laughs> so we're living through the, this, this chronic, you know, the promiscuity of time and how every day is Christmas or Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's such gifts. Like there's such gifts into um, chaos, like the embracing of this, like you don't get to decide what it's going to be. <laughs> like, you know, if you, if you decide to just let yourself have it, they, they're just these like amazing portals into like, let's go play in this chaos. What, what can we do? What's really, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, what is something that your children um, have taught you recently? <laughs> I think the, uh, the, the title of this beautiful conversation, this, your podcast, Raising Rebels, is just beautifully appropriate. Um, I, I mean, I, I need to, I need to, foreground that I am Yoruba. And uh-huh. for anyone who knows anyone from that part of Africa, um, we were largely brought up in very, very, uh, how do I say it? Linear and straightforward ways, right? It, it was, it was the, it was the assumed um, mastery of parents Right, I brought. I was brought up in an environment where parents had the final say. That kind of mm-hmm. thing. Right? It's like slap you upside the head if you mm-hmm. say anything. Yeah. Don't look mm-hmm. at me in the eye. That kind of thing. Of course, mm-hmm. we loved each other in our family, but there was a very, very 
strong and, in retrospect, rigid arrangement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, things went one way and not the other way. Um, so I, having those legacies written into my bones, I do struggle, and I have struggled with, with how to approach. That's why I don't think of myself as a father. I think of myself as a fathering, right? It's ongoing. I'm still, I'm still at this thing. Um, but my children are teaching me every day to challenge or to meet the demons that I've received. And I don't mean to pathologize it by calling it demons, but to meet those hidden curricula, the, the hidden imperatives that I received and they're, they're asking something different of me. A brief story about our time in, and I tell the story a lot. Um, we were living in Richmond, Virginia for some time, and my daughter was two years old then. And she, you know, I, I, I came out in the morning and I said to myself that I'm going to do anything she says for me to do today. Some parenting experiment that I've not repeated ever since. <laughs> 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 it, I love it. it. I love it. I love it. It lived and died that one day. <laughs> uh, it lived and died that one day. Birthday oh, was death day. It'll be, um, you'll do it again. You'll do it again. You'll do it again. Oh, maybe. But, but, but she says, <laughs> she says uh, I said, I'm going to say yes to her. And I was, I think, in part inspired by this movie that I just watched called Yes Man by Jim Carrey. And okay. so I said, I was going to do anything she says. And so she, um, she's two years old, by the way, and she, she's like, okay, Dada, let's go swim. And, and, and I don't know how to swim, to say. I'm the stereotype of Black people not knowing how to swim. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, okay, let's do it. Let's go swim. Um, swimming pool is safe, so I can hold the corners and, and put you in a thing to ensure your safety. And so we're walking to the swimming pool, flip-flops and all. We're supposed to take a right, but then she points to the lake, mm-hmm. presuming that to be the swimming pool. And I'm like, no, that's not the swimming pool. This is the swimming pool right here. That's the lake. That's danger there. This is where we should be going to. But she's insistent and she's saying that's the swimming pool. And I had to abide by my promise. And so I keep on walking to the lake. By and by, we arrive. And uh, okay, by the way, she says, remove your slippers. She's really rubbing the salt into the wound. And she's like, remove your slippers, wear mine, and I will wear yours. And so uh, we do this exchange and we arrive at the shore, at at the lakeside. And then I'm about to speak, to, to do the Yoruba thing and tell her about her culture and her people. And then she says, shh. And she tells me to listen and to keep quiet and not use so many words, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I do. I've written about this in my book. What, what happens afterwards has stayed with me over the years. It's just mm-hmm. this powerful spiritual event that I had of witnessing the uh, agency of everything around me. But that's just a snippet. That's just an example of how my kids are teaching me to be still. Mm-hmm. And to and to come to the world in a new way. Mm-hmm. 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 
Mm, so much. I have, well, I have a question about what you just said, which is not even like what. Did you tell her that you were going to say yes to whatever she said? Um, if I remember correctly, I might have done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did that. I'm sure I did mm-hmm. that because I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to say yes to every. And I think she really, uh, she really ran with it <laughs> in ways it that be- I didn't. <laughs> It would be interesting for you to do it without, without telling proclaiming it, yes. it, without proclaiming it and like what happens, you know what I mean? Because we're also, mm-hmm. I just think we just, it's so interesting. And I'm so excited about that idea of experimenting as a parent. It's a lot of like what I hope the community that we're building with Raising Rebels understands, like it's exactly what you're saying. Like we're evolving. It's not about a destination. It's like this kind of like try some things, be okay. Like understand that failing is part of the process. Um, And so interestingly enough, on this season of Raising Rebels, I really am thinking about myself as a rebel that I'm raising. A lot of like unlearning, a lot of like reparenting, a lot of like, thinking I knew something and realizing like, I don't know that. I just think I know that, or I figured out how to like make that work for me for a period of time. And so um, this season, I've been talking a lot about the things that I'm like struggling with as a parent, like the things that are, um, and why I even began this podcast was this kind of idea of people who I know, who I respect, who are like movement people and like, activists and liberators and all of the things. They do all the things, they do all the things. But when it comes to their parenting, they like rely on the same oppressive mindset and behaviors um, that they are fighting against. Like there's like, we can fight the people out there, but like it's actually happening in your home and in the village. So I was like, I want to have these conversations. So we have been having them. And now I'm looking at the things that I'm struggling and something that I'm struggling with um, right now is how I have chosen to raise my children in like my, like really thinking about myself as like allowing them to be like the raising is not even like a purpose. It's not like a purposeful, like these are the things I want to instill in you. It's more of an acceptance of like, Oh no, this is who you are. And my job and my role is just to allow for it to almost like clean the way, like, like make the path. And so I've like raised them in this way. And now they're meeting the world and the world, the world, (laughs) the world is not, um, what I have not been able to do the work of because it's beyond me, I think is to prepare the world for them. Right. Like the, the world is still the same fucked up world, you know, like it's the same. And here these, these people are going into it, like liberated and and trying to move in liberated ways. And it's extremely, extremely um, hard and challenging because I've decided a long time ago that I'm going to tell my children the truth and the truth is hard, hard. And so, um, as I was thinking about that conversation and, and and what is hard about that, the thing, something that came to mind to me is like this idea of like the lies that we've been told and how um, part of parenting in this way is like choosing not to lie to your children and choosing to unveil the lies that are in society about like equality. And um, if we just march enough times or we just um, sign enough petitions or we just be our very, very best selves, 
rainbows, you know, and, and kind of, and how hard that is. And it made me think about this idea of disillusionment. And so part of what I do on the podcast to start is um, we do recollections. And the reason why I do recollections is to, first of all, to give reverence to our children, like to remember remember ourselves as young people. Um, and also many times when we're parenting, we think about who we are now versus who we were and how we thought when we were the age of the, our children that we have now. And so recollections kind of help with that. And so I asked you to do a recollection of a time of disillusionment and that I asked you like to push back as far as you could into your memory and to share a story with us. Um, and so you would you share your story with us, please, Bio? Mm, oh, this is this is a hard one. I'm, I'm thinking about the uh, I'm thinking about many examples of but maybe they're they, they don't go as far back as um as childhood, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. And I think that's fine, right? I could, mm -hmm. I don't need to go yes. far back. It's so interesting you're saying this. It's something I want to like talk about. I have found that it is really challenging for, I was literally talking to my partner about this early as we were walking. I was like, I find it that it's really challenging interviewing um, people who identify as male to talk about childhood memories in this way. I've consistently, it's so interesting. I just literally, so I just want to say like, yes, it's fine. <laughs> Whatever you hope to share, I'm happy to hear. But I do think that it's like, it's hard. It is hard. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have very fond memories of childhood. I, I'm, um, maybe I'll choose this one then. And it does have a lot to do. You've just provoked something. You've inspired something. It has a lot to do with masculinity. Um, I, I had, I remember a not too fine experience um, in which, in which I, I had to, uh, I mean, I think it had to do with, with um, a cockroach. <laughs> yeah. And my childhood fright of those buggers, those critters, mm -hmm. I was... And the shame I felt, you know, from the uncles, because nuclear arrangements are not as stable in, I think, in, in Africa, and I think in minoritarian communities and in the West, but especially in Africa, we, we don't, we have daddy and mommy and uncles mm -hmm. and aunties and grandmas and you know so and people we who insists that they're related with us but we can't quite draw the line but that's you know you take it as it is um and i oh i think i grew up with this image of the of the male figure of becoming a man that i was um that that brought a lot of shame to me because i felt i would never live up to that my father was a man's man, you know, sideburns and all. He was mm -hmm. a representative of the entire nation state in a different country. He wore his suits right. And he didn't know how to knot a tie to save his life. But my mom did that for him. But he was, he was, he fit the, the, the shape. And I found out my aspirations, the things I wanted to do, my effeminate voice, the things I was really interested in doing did not fit the call to be a man that was disseminated by the context that I was mm -hmm. in. Um, I, th I think this is, this has been my, 
um, do I call it a disillusionment? I think in part, but it's also an awakening to the multi, uh, the multi-dimensionality of masculinity, mm-hmm. um, which is also feeding my my quest for parenting methodologies that allow me to be open to what my children are saying, not just to me, but to the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my father died when I was 15 and he left in me um, a daddy-shaped hole that I've been struggling to fill um, mm-hmm. ever since, um, a ghost that haunts me today. Of course, in terms of masculinity, but in terms of the question, what does it mean to be father? What does it mean to be a parent to rebels mm-hmm. in, in these times that call for them? Um, so I guess that my quest is um, is dealing with the disappointment of not living up to those shapes, but also living into the glory mm-hmm. and the adventure of rebelling against those shapes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I thought of it for myself also. Um, and at first when I started thinking about it, I was like, do I have any disillusionments of childhood? And then I just kept remembering how um, I, my younger sister would say to me all the time, you live in La La Land. Like you live in La La Land. And I was like, what are you talking about? I get so so upset about it until like I was adult in therapy and my I was talking to my therapist about it and she's like, well, you kind of do live in La La And this is why. And it's a coping mechanism and it's how you survive and all those things. And I kind of, um, it was helpful for me. So now when I look back of it, I remember a lot of moments of disillusionment or like where the mask was like unveiled and unveiled. And then, um, but one one time in particular when I was thinking about this 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 episode, I was thinking about what came to mind to me. Um, it's, it's really hard. Um, it's still really hard. Uh, you know, like here I am, I'm like stuttering over telling it. But um, when I was about, I think maybe 15, 14, I don't remember, maybe somewhere in there. Um, I was talking to my father um, who to me, in my mind, was a very, like, I saw him as an intellectual, I guess a way of thinking it, where my mother was a very, like, emotional, kind of, like, fiery person. I saw my dad as a very, like, rational, intellectual, deep thinker. We could go places and in conversation, dialogue. So we, there was a conflict in the family around a decision that, um, was being made about my sister in school and things like that. And I had a perspective. So me and my dad were just having the conversation about it. And I think I said to him, um, I was like, yeah, I think you guys are making a decision based on like money and you need to make a decision based on what's in the best interest of my sister. You know, like I said, something like that. And he slapped me across the face. And I remember my dad had never put his hands on me before that. Never, ever. I'd never seen my dad break, like lose his temper. I had never seen, like I said to him, to me in my mind, he was this kind of very like, and we, and I was just, I was just talking. Like, I didn't feel like there was a plate, you know, like, like you're talking about, I'm Jamaican first generation. So like this kind of, um, 
colonial, you know, this kind of like hierarchy and who gets to say what and all that. I didn't, I knew it existed and definitely existed in places in my family, but not in my like discourse with my dad, especially not around like things like this. You know, we're just, we're, we're talking about, um, and his risk. And then he did, I mean, the shock must've, <laughs> the shock on my face must've been shocking to him too. I think he was shocked by it. And he, I think he said something like, yeah, you made me do that. Like the way you, something, it was never, it wasn't like an apology or like not a real apology. It was more of like, yeah, you, you crossed the line. You went too far and that's what happened. Um, and I wouldn't say that the reality of disillusionment like kind of happened all at once, but those are like, that was like one of those moments of the, um, I've been thinking a lot lately about how many Black men, fathers particularly, are living this kind of imposter syndrome of thinking that the life, you know, like their happiness, their wife, their kids, like, like the whole very the whole picture book that they've created for themselves is like they're really hiding their true like rage. They're really true, like they're like it's, it's an imposter. Like people seeing things that are not really um, and um. I, I think in that moment, <laughs> you know, yeah, my heart broke, you know, of course, like my heart was broken in this kind of sense of like who I think you are and who I think we are in relationship with each other is actually not true. And, you know, the misogyny, the the adultism, like all of the things that are true, um, I got to see, Um and the breaking down continues, you know? Um, but yeah, that was really, 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 really hard. And when I think about my own children now and talking to them about the truth of the world, there's a way that I know that I anticipate the disillusionment, like moments of where their hearts breaks because of the realities of the world that they're in, but what I want to do everything in my power to like not be part of the case is like a disillusionment about who I told them I was or how, you know, or who, how they get to be in relationship with me. That is probably a direct result of that experience that I had with my father and many others. Um, and so I am so like, I just want to say I have, I am, um, how I came to you, like how I learned you, was in the midst of, you know, uh, life. Um, the we as a family moved um, from the U.S. to Amsterdam right before the pandemic hit, um, and we moved because of a desire for more liberation. Like we literally, like when people ask, like, why did we move? I was like we moved to escape the U.S. Like, I don't know a better way of explaining it. We didn't have work. Fine with me. We, yeah, you know, we didn't have work. We didn't have anything planned out. We moved. We, you know, we had, like, no money in our bank account, and we just kind of moved into a hostel, and we were just like, we're going to just figure it out. Things have been amazing for us. It has gone better than, ex- like, I couldn't, I'm living my best life. But when we left, it was like an intense kind of like, no, we have to get out of here. Um and so in the midst of all of that, I um, heard you on a podcast with um, Prentice Tempel, um, Finding Your Way. 
everyone, if you do not listen to that podcast, you need to go and get your life. Um, but you were speaking about something that I just, it was like, you know, like you believe something, you think something and you hear somebody else say it and you're like, yes, <laughs> you know, that's, and I, um, you spoke to hope, like, like hopelessness. I don't think you would, you'd call it hopelessness, but it was just this kind of like, the way I heard it was this sense of like, you don't buy into this false hope. Like that hope isn't, there's other, other ways. There's other ways of thinking about things. And I am famous for saying to my children or people in general, it's like, I don't have a lot of hope about that. You know, like, it's just not, and that, and I don't, that's not like I'm moping around or anything. It's just like my, I'm not invested in something going a particular way as the motivation to engage, you know, or to live or to like be in this world. And so when I heard you speaking and I was just like blown away, the conversation was so rich. But then when I heard you tell the story of your children and your family and how you had made the decision to just like, we're just going to do it us. I was like, yes, this is my, this is we're we're, we're, we're in sync. I need to know this person. And, um, I'm so happy that we get to sit and talk now. Um, and specifically around our children. And so I have tons of like thoughts and questions for you about things, but I'm, I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to like, um, what am I, I'm going to pace myself. I'm going to pace myself and I'm going to trust that we'll get to have lots of conversations. We'll get to have lots of conversations. And so I guess the first thing, the first question I have for you is what do you tell your children about the world? Like, what do you share with them about what is what is the world? Yes, yes. Well, I when I came from a very crystal centric world, right, uh-huh. and uh, a background that privileged the divine above the material, if you will. Um, I no longer subscribe to that hierarchy of relationships, right where the secret is far away and the material is just a means to that end. Mm-hmm. Um, I am learning to recover a sense in which the secret is living here, not as an epiphenomenon of the material, but imbricated with, entangled within, threaded through the ordinary. So I think the heart of the things that I say to my children when I'm not listening, or maybe when I'm listening as well, is to invite a sense of appreciation for the ordinary. I grew up in a generation where parents were almost mandated to tell their children that they're they're special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're, you're special and you're going to do special things and the world is your oyster and you can make it. But I think part of the things that I'm, echoing to my, and I say echoing for a specific reason, part of the things that I'm echoing to my children, what we are echoing to our children, is what they're teaching us in return, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have chosen a life outside of, well, not purely outside, but we are choosing to, my wife and I call it transparenting. You got it. You got it. You've got to explain that term to me. I'm so curious. You probably have heard of this phenomenon called microchimerism. Have you? 
No, I have not. This is the thing that happens with people that are like as brilliant as you are. It's like, no, no, we have not. The whole, no, 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 we have not. We have not. We want to, we are capable, but we have not. So please do share. Please do share. It's, it's fetal microchimerism. It's this, it's this observation that the baby in the womb is not just a passive recipient of the mother's cells. It also propagates cells to the mother. So there's an inter-exchange, right? It's an intramolecular exchange of cells. So that in a very, very ironic sense, they're both mothering each other, right? And it's known that sometimes even, even when the child has left the womb, the cells of that child still are lodged within the mother as even in the brain of the mother, right? That feels so good to me. Wait, as you're saying it, it, it's feeling, I'm feeling it's euphoric. It's euphoric. The idea that my, ch- I mean, they're amazing, like that they're, they're they've, uh, sorry, you like, I'm, I'm so excited about that. <laughs> I'm so excited about that. Yeah. Right, right. It, it it gets unwieldy very quickly because part of the implication of that is, as has been noted, I'm not the first to note this, but that the, the child that comes afterwards, like if you're a firstborn, the secondborn is not just um, mothered by its biological mother. It's mothered by the sibling, right? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. There's this entanglement it's chimeric and you know the chimera is the monster so there's this monstrous assemblage that disturbs the linearity of parenting it tells us that we are actually transparenting each other right it's a we're leaping from here to there and there's this monstrous assemblage but my wife she's a biologist so she calls it transparenting and she feels that this is an invitation to lean deeply into our kids, just as we expect them to learn from and with us, right? Mm-hmm. And so this informs this idea of what we're exploring as unschooling, right? So we curate spaces for them to do things, to mess up the place, which is very difficult to clean up afterwards, but but to mm-hmm. create worlds and to and to render ourselves variable. And what I mean by that is parenting usually, especially the way I received it, is usually premised on the stability of the adult, right? The Mm -hmm. adult doesn't move ground. There's no nomadicity there. The adult is stable. The child has to come up to the adult, up Mm -hmm. to the elbow. But what would it take for us to also move, right? To also move and to to be active recipients of the influences of our children, Yoruba people have, um, we have these names um, like Yewande. Yewande means uh, grandmother has returned or Babatunde, which the father has returned. There's some incarnatory idea in, you know, in our stories. And what we're trying to say is that children do not come to the earth. They come from within the earth. So they, they're not blank slates. They come with wisdoms fitting mm-hmm. into their, if modernity had a place for that, maybe we wouldn't be so quick to rush our children into schools is what I'm trying to say here. So I guess that we are listening to our children 
And we are wanting to follow them to places that we would not go if they were not there. And I'm not quite sure where I was going with this, sister. Whether what was questioning? <laughs> I've tripped stuff too far. No, it's okay. No, you don't. I'm first of all. Let me say to you. I told you I'm here for it, and not just that. You're not by yourself, so I'm gonna. I'm here. You don't have to hold any. Like you don't have to hold it by yourself. But in what you're saying, right? Like my question, or I want to dig in more. Is like so. You're 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 creating a space where it is focused, they get to be the focus, right? They get to lead what the conversations are. They get to lead what the discourse is. You, you're you in it together. And I think my question is like, of the, like the, like the, the history of the world, the, what's happening in the larger world, like um, climate, any, any of the things that we trouble ourselves with, right? That we're aware of, um, how much of that, if any, are you sharing with them, like inside of their bubble, like in the worlds that they're creating? How much of are they hearing from you? Um, what is happening outside? I, I think I wanted to share this idea of fetal microchimerism and transparenting um, to take the conversation in a, a slightly different direction. Um, to to say that we are emphasizing a posture of listening to them as much as we want to tell them stuff. So yes, mm-hmm. we're telling them about climate change mm-hmm. and as the opportunities arrive and as we gauge it within our senses of the appropriateness or your ability mm-hmm. to receive those ideas. We're, we're, mm-hmm. we're going into accounts of the middle passage mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the transatlantic slave trade and that yes, we are um, tensions uh, tensional, if you will, recipients mm-hmm. of very, very complicated histories. Mm-hmm. And that the mm-hmm. world is in a fairy tale and it doesn't revolve around some hopey goody um, notions mm-hmm. of it. So, but but I wanted, I mentioned this because I really wanted to emphasize that um, we are we are infecting the stories we tell our kids with what we're listening to, with what we are learning from them. Because there is a sense in which we are very wary about repeating um, and reinforcing the paradigms that we're in, right? For instance, when Mm -hmm. we say we're unschooling, we actually mean we're unschooling ourselves. They've never been to school, right? Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. We're unschooling our own sensibilities. We're desubjectivizing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and so we are, we're learning to play with them. I think it's in the middle of that play that we listen for what wants to be shared and, mm-hmm. and what they want to share with us because we treat mm-hmm. them as philosophers in their own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, and that's where that idea of hope comes from, right? Mm-hmm. That it cannot be that we give our children some optimism, some, uh, some, uh, uh, unbothered hopeness or hope hopefulness rather mm-hmm. um, that says march into the future it's yours for the taking mm-hmm. we're inviting we're invite, we're inviting a slowness right a sensibility that allows them them to be animistically alive to ordinary things to books to textures mm-hmm. the things around them and not to be so futural you know we're all futural we're all using anticipatory frameworks, but not to be so geared towards what comes next that they forget the thickness of now. Everything you're saying is is like I I was the word I want to use. I um 
I'm echo. <laughs> like I want to echo. Um, and I, a reason why I asked the question um, is this idea of, I think sometimes happen within our communities and a lot of, you know, I, I've, I've taught, I ran a school once, I've taught in schools and there's always this push around current events or like making sure that children are aware of what is happening in the world. And it's never sat well with me. I didn't at the time, like as a young teacher or starting, I didn't, and before I had my own children, I don't, I didn't know why it didn't sit well with me, but there was something about it that felt not personal, like not present, not real for children. And that we were, I was deciding as the adult, what was valuable or not valuable, what was important or what was not important, what was the story or not the story. And so exactly what you're saying, it was a repeating of what had been told to me. And then when I had my own children who are, you know, have three children, they're different people. They have different capacities. They have different sensitivities. They have different, like, levels of like what they can hold, what they can't hold. This idea that I would just share random information with them because I think it's valuable or important, or I think that they need to know, or some teacher or some news, like me, I, I just knew that that was not right. And exactly, or what, it wasn't fair to them. It was like a place of gatekeeping that I was not holding well, <laughs> you know, as they're like, as their person, as the as their holder of them, and so this idea of what you're saying of, around the thickness of now, and through that space of like really dissecting where we are now, what we see now, things will come up. They all they have tons of curiosities and questions, and but there is no. I don't feel any need to to, to like push anything, and in many ways, I try to. And I didn't, this is like one of the learnings of becoming a parent because before I became a parent, I did not think this was the way I would be engaged with my kids. But I find myself being very protective of what they're exposed to because I realize how hearing all of the stuff of what's happening in the world impacts me. And part of my piece is like, I'm not, I'm not influencing that. Like, you know, like I'm not in, in, in any kind of way that is in any way. That, okay. So let me, I'm going to like skip to something, but not really skip to something because it, it's in alignment. So I recently learned about this term Afro-pessimism. Are you familiar with it? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, and so this, it, it's, it was fairly new to me, but against this idea of like, it is what it is, you know, and our, it's like this idea of um, like releasing the hope of it being another way or that something I produce or something that I can do is going to shift the, 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 the power dynamics that have existed for centuries. And it's just like, this is where we are. And I have found this kind of... Um, Radical acceptance is what we practice in our house. We talk a lot about like, we just practice radical acceptance. You are who you are. I am who I am. And now how are we going to be with each other? It's not about changing you and it's not about changing me. Um, it's about like accepting who we are. And then also this kind of way with Afro pessimism of this, of that same concept of like, this is the world we live in. How are we going to be in this space? And I have found that so freeing. <laughs> having this thought 
based on this idea of hope. And I think like this, what you said around like hope allows for joy in the in between. I get that. Like, and I think it, it I, I think that I feel that. And I feel like hopelessness allows for freedom. And so like, and I just, I don't know. I just feel there's another level of freedom to get to that is like a complete, like being present in like this real way where the future is just like something that we will never know. Which is like, and I do think that when we think of hopelessness, mm-hmm. like when you say hopelessness, the first thing that comes to mind is like despair. Mm-hmm. It is like a giving up. When hopelessness, what it really is, is it's a letting go, right? Like it's letting go of the expectations Mm -hmm. and it's letting go of the wishing and it's letting go of a lot of like what hope is. I have felt like this like release of hope to allow for so much pleasure and joy in my life with my family and my children um and that and part of that is not feeling like I need to know what is happening on the news cycle right now like I don't know what's happening in the world until sometimes I never know like sometimes I I will hear about things I don't, I'm not, you know, like I might never hear about I, a year later. Like, do you remember when the, I like, no, cause it, it, I didn't, you know, like I did and it's okay. It actually feels fine. It doesn't have, it. it's good. Um, and so, yeah, I'm wondering for you, what has like hopelessness allowed for, <laughs> you know, like what, what has this kind of like, just, Yeah. Like, like, what is it allowed for? Yes. So, so you know, if you were to extend the, um, or to really dive deep into that Frank's um, exploration of Afro-pessimism, it's, it's speaking about the generativity of hopelessness mm-hmm. and really centering the, the human, the human as this, territory of acting and believing and feeling and and thinking right the human is not the anthropomorphic figures we're used to the human Mm -hmm. is this colonial enterprise Mm -hmm. and it's within this colonial enterprise that hope gains its instrumentality and its deviousness because suddenly hope becomes an insistence that we will live by all means and by us, I mean modern citizenry. And by modern citizenry, I mean the city. That we will continue to damage the environment. We will continue to propagate our kind. We will go to Mars, to the moon, whatever it takes. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's dangerous. That's a dangerous uh, place to be in, where we seek our permanence to the death of everything else. So Afro-pessimism mm-hmm. is like, maybe we shouldn't be so invested in living within this pathological space. Maybe we want mm-hmm. to nurture a sensibility to a loss of hope and see where that leads us. How might mm-hmm. hopelessness be a cartographical project, right? Mm-hmm. How might that take us elsewhere? So Afro-pessimism, you know, one doesn't want to hold it as 
the truth. I don't think in terms of representation. So truth isn't so big in my scheme of things. Um, I think it's speculative. And it's very interesting to know that the way it interacts with you is a liberating sense of, Mm -hmm. maybe I could, you know, relinquish my hold on speaking my my place into the city hall and and doing something else. Maybe other Mm -hmm. possibilities are available. Other political imaginaries are waiting to be inhabited. That's beautiful. So the question is, what does it allow us to do? And I'm asking that question in the same spirit as our children, right? Mm -hmm. And parenting as the risk-taking decolonial activity, Mm -hmm. right? That that, Mm -hmm. that we're now calling on schooling, right? It's like we've lost our way. It's time to play. Yes, 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 yes. It's like, I mean, my, my wife actually started this enterprise called Broken Compass, right? And it's the whole idea is we're done. Our sanity has brought us here. So we don't know what to do. So, you know, we need to stay in this place of this cat cradling tensions with our children we will always take risks with what we tell them, but we want it to be this dialogic, cartographical, spiritually dense place where it's a listening to what they have to offer as much as we want to offer them things as well, right? So mm-hmm. I think hopelessness is part of that mix. Grieving together is part of that mix. Oh, like I shared, yes. shared with you yeah. that my mother-in-law died some time ago and this isn't a tradition that I'm used to, but the, the body is brought into the living quarters, our, our space. This isn't done, right? Like I said, this isn't done where I come from. But my mother-in-law was brought into the room and here's a body right in front of everyone. My mother and father would have chased us away, right? Mm-hmm. If that happened to us, like mm-hmm. go to your room. Mm-hmm. But here we are and my daughter is standing right there. She loved mm-hmm. her grandma crying. And I'm whispering to her, do you want to go? Do you want to leave? Is it getting too uncomfortable? And she says, no, just like that moment in Virginia, she's just staring and crying. And after some time, she stops crying, but she's just there with her grandmother. Yes. There and not there. And I felt that this is such a powerful moment of staying with the grief. And I'm not going to try to get her out of the room. I'm going to invite her to stay with this dying, this death, this sense of loss. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so maybe maybe that's maybe maybe our children have some things to teach us. There are cracks in the fabric of continuity. The universe mm-hmm. is beckoning for us to stay with this trouble. And children offer us the technology of novelty that schooling mm-hmm. often obscures when we try to rush them into the way of the familiar. Absolutely. Thank you so, I mean, this conversation went in so many places that I didn't expect, but also like a widening, which I really appreciate. Um, And I feel like I got to know your children a little bit and how they are like parenting you. Like, it's just so, you know, like how you are in awe and like in learning of them. And I think that is such a good place to be, such a rich place to be it's and it is it's so immediate i think like this um this idea of 
like telling our children the truth and all of those things that we want to, like, I know I'm trying to hold and I get the impression that you and your partner are trying to hold with them. It's not as, I thought it would be so hard because the world just seems so hard, but in many ways it doesn't feel that hard because they're leading. It feels like it, there's a softness to it. And I think there's something you said about like the pacing, the time of like, we're, we're trying to get to the future and it's like being present in this moment, um, which is always seems to always be the answer to be present, um, makes things move at the pace that they're supposed to move, like where we can all digest it. <laughs> Um, do you have, I've been asking because I'm just curious, do you have any questions for me or a question for me? Hmm. Well, I was going to ask, I'm uh, very happy to hear, I don't know why I was happy, but I, I jumped a little bit when you said that you're, you're Jamaican. Right. Yes. I did, yes. I felt I felt closer then. Uh, somehow yes. I felt closer. Of course. Of course. Uh, I was like, yeah, it's, it's, here's a sister. We're connected um, through Caribbean cartographies, and um, well, I I don't have one that I can articulate at this moment in time. Just mm-hmm. a sense of joy at the at what we've done here and what mm-hmm. we're yet to do. Yeah, I'm grateful for this. Just an overwhelming sense of gratitude, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yay! I'm, yes. Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> Stand up fussing and fighting. Raising Rebels is produced by Queer Media, a family production company specializing in audio and visual art through a black queer lens. This was edited by Marcelino Van Callias at La Femme productions please make sure to rate subscribe and review this podcast you can find us on instagram at raising rebels pod or email us at raising rebels at queermedia.co.y thank you for listening to raising rebels bye Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.